the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today we're going to talk with Catherine Petrus. She, along with her brother, co-authored That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means, the 150 Most Commonly Misused Words and Their Tangled Histories. I'm telling you, when you do a two-hour talk show every day, you, you open a book like that with fear and trepidation, knowing you've probably misused every word in the book, and there are 150 of them, words and phrases. But uh, we look forward to talking with Catherine about that and how it might be a useful volume for those of us who at least want to be understood and speak clearly this English language. We're also going to talk with the stream's... Um, John Zmirak, he has written about uh, Asia Bibi. She's the Christian woman in Pakistan. You might recall uh, she had um, had the audacity to drink from a Muslim-only fountain and then when uh, pressed about it, argued the superiority of Christianity to Islam, which, of course, was not a very popular idea at the time. She was imprisoned. She was uh, given a life sentence or a death sentence, I should say. Uh, That was uh, recently, fairly recently overturned, but... Uh, finding a Western nation, she tried, uh, starting with the U.K., uh, to give her asylum has been something of a challenge. But in that piece, John Zmirak points out that uh, politicized Islam and Western secularism have some um, some things in common that you might not have thought of. And we'll talk with him about all of that uh, later in the five o'clock hour. We're looking forward to uh, to that conversation. First, some of the developing stories of the day. President Trump, in an exclusive interview over the weekend, addressed controversies surrounding his acting attorney general and the Robert Mueller probe, a potential upcoming changes in his administration, his war of words with CNN's correspondent Jim Acosta and more. Of course, Acosta has been given his credentials back, at least temporarily, while the lawsuit continues. The president told Fox News it wasn't necessary for him to hear the tape of purported killing of activist Jamal Khashoggi and that Saudi crown prince had repeatedly denied involvement in that slaying. The CIA is expected to release its report on the subject, saying that they believe the crown prince was directly involved. We'll talk more about that later this hour. And Democratic Senator Bill Nelson conceded Florida's hard-fought U.S. Senate race to Republican Governor Rick Scott on Sunday after machine and manual recounts had Scott ahead by approximately 10,000 votes. Embattled Florida election official Brenda Snipes reportedly has submitted her resignation. Now, she had said earlier that she intends to leave, but in two years, that apparently has been accelerated. And the death toll of California's devastating wildfires has risen to at least 77, while the number of people unaccounted for has dropped to 1,000. Authorities concerned are concerned, rather, that rain could hinder the search for more victims. Oh, such a tragedy there. 
to the South. Well, the president, as I mentioned, speaking on Fox News to Chris Wallace in an exclusive interview, a wide ranging interview. He defended acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker against Democrats call for his recusal in Robert Mueller's Russia investigation, said that he probably would not sit down for an interview with Mueller. The president said he was unaware that Whitaker previously had been critical of Mueller's probe and had written in 2017 that it was at risk of becoming a political fishing expedition. The president added that he would not get involved in Whitaker's decision as he oversees Mueller's probe in his new role as head of the Justice Department and was confident Whitaker was going to do the right thing or what's right. The president added that he has personally responded to Mueller's written questions in the Russia probe and that they would be submitted very soon. He said that his team is writing what I tell them to write, making clear that these were his answers to those questions in response to the inquiries. Uh, Trump emphasized, however, that he probably would not sit for an in-person interview with Mueller amid fears voiced by his attorney that he could be tricked into a so-called perjury trap. The president also addressed several other topics, including his war of words with CNN's uh, White House correspondent Jim Acosta. If he misbehaves, we'll throw him out or we'll stop the news conference altogether. On rumored upcoming cha- uh, changes rather in his administration, the president said Chief of Staff John Kelly will want to move on and suggested he is considering potential changes in three or four or five positions. Well, the president said there's no reason to hear the Khashoggi tape uh, in his interview. Uh, in that same interview, he said that there was no reason for him to hear a tape recording purported to be the killing of the Saudi activist uh, inside the kingdom's Istanbul cons- uh, consulate last month. We have the tape. I don't want to hear the tape. No reason for me to hear it, Trump said on Fox News Sunday. When Chris Wallace asked why he did not want to hear the recording, Trump said, because it's a suffering tape. It's a terrible tape. I've been fully briefed on it. There's no reason for me to hear it directly. Well, on Saturday, the president vowed that his administration would be having a very full report over the next two days, probably Monday or Tuesday. We now know that's Tuesday. It was unclear whether the document would be made public. The Washington Post and other outlets have reported that the CIA had concluded that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered Khashoggi's death. U.S. Uh, government officials said on Saturday that no final assessment or conclusion relating to the Crown Prince's involvement had been reached, nor had a so-called smoking gun been found. So there's some... Um, dispute over whether or not the Washington Post's assessment is accurate. The president told Fox News Sunday that the crown prince, known informally as MBS, uh, had told him maybe five times that he had no involvement in Khashoggi's death. When Wallace asked what President uh, Trump would do if he determines that the crown prince had lied to him, the president said, will anybody really know? Meanwhile, Florida's longtime Democratic Senator Bill Nelson conceded to Republican challenger Governor Rick Scott on Sunday, drawing the hotly contested race to represent the Sunshine State to a close after 12 days of legal wrangling. According to the Florida Secretary of State uh, State's office, Scott led Nelson by approximately 10,000 votes after the state's 67 counties completed machine and manual recounts. Um, Nelson, who served three terms in the U.S. Senate, met his match in Scott, who launched a competitive campaign for Florida votes. Scott, a two-term governor of the state, said Nelson called him to graciously concede and that Scott, in turn, thanked Nelson for his years of service. Scott has now won narrow victories in three statewide races since 2010. And Brenda Snipes, the much-criticized supervisor of elections in Florida's Broward County, has submitted her resignation, the South Florida Sun-Sentinel reported on Sunday. The paper reported that Snipes' resignation will take effect in January. Snipes was under fire for his, her handling of the votes during this 
this year's election as in previous years. Florida's contests for governor and U.S. Senate went uh, to recounts, putting the political spotlight on the Sunshine State with an intensity uh, not seen since the 2000 presidential election. And the search for remains of victims of the devastating North Carolina, North Car- California wildfire rather, has taken on new urgency as rain in the forecast could complicate those efforts while also bringing relief to firefighters on the front lines. Up to 400 people fanned out Sunday to search the ashes and rubble where homes once stood before flames roared through the Sierra Hills uh, town of Paradise and the surrounding communities, killing at least 77 in the deadliest U.S. wildfire in a century. Teams of volunteers and search and rescue crews poked through the smoky debris for fragments of bone before rains can wash them away or uh, turn loose dry ash into a thick paste. About 1,000 names remain on a list of people unaccounted for more than a week after the fire began. Authorities don't believe all those on the list are missing, um, and uh, the roster dropped by 300 on Sunday as more people were located or got in touch uh, to say they weren't missing. And on this day in 2007, Amazon.com released its first Kindle ebook reader. On this day in 1990, the pop duo, rather, Millie Vanilli, are stripped of their Grammy Awards because it was discovered other singers had lent their voices to the Girl You Know It's True album. And on this day in 1985, President Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev meet for the first time as they begin their summit in Geneva. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Liberty Coin and Currency. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Catherine Petrus. She is the co-author, along with her brother, of the book, That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means. It's kind of a fun volume, but also very informative. So we'll talk with her in the next hour. Well, in a pretty blunt contrast to the warm reception that thousands of migrants received as they made their arduous journey through Central America to Mexico, getting food donations, well wishes from locals. The nearly 3,000 people who reached the Mexican border with California in recent days have been met with marked hostility. The majority of migrants who have uh, been on foot for more than a month are sleeping on the dirt baseball field at an outdoor sports complex in Tijuana by the newly fortified barbed wire fence that separates Mexico from the United States. A truck parked on the street is providing showers for women while the men are told to use newly established outdoor showers near that field. Reports of insults being shouted, rocks being hurled, and even physical fistfights have escalated over the weekend. And we're talking about uh, residents of Tijuana, Mexico, not U.S. citizens. The reception has left many in limbo, afraid to return to their homeland, which for the vast majority is Honduras, yet unwelcome in Mexico and uncertain if their U.S. asylum requests will be granted. Now, under the strict laws of asylum in the United States, most would not re- would not um, qualify. The U.S. is said to be processing around 100 claims per day, and we're talking about 300 people who have reach, reached that border thus far. Tijuana's mayor, Juan Miguel Gastelum, uh, has referred to the arrivals as um, bums and question whether a referendum in the city of 1.6 million is needed to determine whether or not they should be allowed to stay. Human rights should be reserved for righteous humans, he lamented last week. And again, we're talking about the mayor of of Tijuana. 
Uh, the Mexican Interior Minister announced on Friday that just under 2,700 Central American migrants have applied for asylum in Mexico under a program that was launched late last month that pledged to provide them with work and living permission faster. Yet officials anticipate that the migrant caravan will soon swell to exceed 10,000 and will need to be housed for more than six months, which the Mexican government claims it lacks the resources to do. Uh, one Honduran ambassador in Mexico, Alden Rivera, told reporters during the visit that the sports complex on Saturday that he's working with local officials to secure additional funding. There, These are our people. We want to uh, do what we can for them, he said. In Honduras, we respect human rights. Uh, it's easier to respect them when they're leaving your country, I suppose, than when they're arriving elsewhere. And the fact that they're leaving the country in many cases because of uh, criminal violence does raise some questions about that statement. Uh, in any event, uh, the welcome in Tijuana was somewhat unexpected and differed dramatically from the reception that has been received in Mexico uh, up to this point. Um, and again, many of these people have been misinformed about what they might expect in this long journey. And uh, many argue that many have been exploited in that process as well. I hope we're praying for, uh, for these men, women and children and their future. Well, three Democratic senators on Monday filed a lawsuit in federal court challenging the constitutionality of President Trump's appointment of Matthew Whitaker as acting attorney general. Now, Whitaker was appointed by the president to lead the Justice Department after Attorney General Jeff Sessions was forced out of that role earlier this month. Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal, Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, and Hawaiian Senator Maisie Hirano, they filed the complaint against Whitaker in the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia today. All three issues uh, issued rather fiery statements. Installing Matthew Whitaker so flagrantly defies constitutional law that any viewer of Schoolhouse Rock would recognize it. Americans uh, prize a system of checks and balances which President Trump's dictatorial appointment betrays. Now, there's wide disagreement uh, of those who actually have law degrees and don't rely on the schoolhouse uh, rock to understand how our country works. So there's disagreement even among those who are informed on this subject. We'll see what the court ultimately says. Uh, says another White House, the stakes are too high to allow the president to install an unconfirmed lackey to lead the Department of Justice, a lackey whose stated purpose apparently is undermining a major investigation into the president. Donald Trump cannot subvert the Constitution to protect himself and evade accountability, Hirano said. Well, the senators are speculating that uh, uh, Mr. Whitaker would uh, try to undermine the Mueller investigation. Uh, The senators argue that Whitaker's appointment is in violation of the Constitution's appointments clause. They ask the federal court to declare Whitaker's appointment unconstitutional and block him from carrying out his duties. But the Justice Department maintains that the appointment is legal. Department of Justice spokeswoman Carrie Kupek said on Monday that appointment is lawful and comports with the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, the Appointments Clause of the U.S. Constitution, Supreme Court President, past Department of Justice opinions and past actions of Republicans and Democrat presidents. There are over 160 instances in American history in which non-Senate confirmed persons performed on a temporary basis the duties of a a Senate confirmed position, Kupek went on to say. To suggest otherwise is to ignore centuries of practice and precedent. Well, last week, the Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel issued an opinion supporting Whitaker's appointment. So the back and forth will continue. Schoolhouse rock notwithstanding. 
Well, CNN reporter Jim Acosta is back in the White House, and the Trump administration is working on rules for decorum during press conferences. President Donald Trump told reporters uh, Friday afternoon when asked about the court ruling, people have to behave. We're writing up rules and regulations. He said other reporters were treated unfairly because you had somebody interrupting you with the rules and regulations. We will end up back in court and we will win. Well, U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly of the District of Columbia granted CNN a temporary restraining order to halt the Trump administration from blocking Acosta's uh, access to the White House and ordered his press pass to be returned. Well, asked what he meant about rules, the president said decorum. You can't take three questions and four questions. You can't stand up and not sit down, Trump said. We want total freedom of the press. It's more important to me than anybody would believe, but you have to act with respect when you're at the White House. And when I see uh, the way some of my people get treated, referring to those who are responsible for the mics and so on, at a news conference, it's terrible. So we're setting up a certain standard, which is what the court is requesting. Well, the judge who was appointed by Trump cited the 1977 D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling in the case of Cheryl versus H. Knight, which determined a press pre- a press pass rather can't be revoked for arbitrary or less than compelling reasons. Kelly noted that the White House did not provide a reason about safety or security in denying the pass. In a packed courtroom on Friday, the judge determined that Acosta, as CNN's chief White House correspondent, a correspondent rather, faced irreparable harm from being unable to access the building. Kelly stressed the very limited nature of today's ruling, adding that he has not determined a First Amendment interest as of yet, which is part of the CNN litigation. Rather, he was only addressing CNN's Fifth Amendment argument on due process. He further said he was not addressing the plaintiff's argument about viewpoint discrimination, but was only ruling that the White House should immediately reinstate Acosta's credentials and they should remain reinstated for the duration of the litigation. Both sides will be back in court next week. The judge ruled on a motion from CNN to restore the past that allows Acosta to enter the White House for the duration of the lawsuit. In a public statement, CNN stressed it's looking at the next step of the, litig- of the litigation. Meanwhile, the White House seized on the judgment, refraining from ruling yet on the First Amendment argument, saying today the court made clear that there was no absolute First Amendment right to access the White House. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said in a statement in response to the court, we will temporarily reinstate the reporter's hard pass. We will also further develop rules and processes to ensure fair and orderly press conferences in the future. There must be decorum at the White House. Well, the long feud between CNN and the president exploded after a rather testy exchange during a presidential press conference the day after the midterm election. After addressing a question, the president refused to answer more Acosta questions and tried to move on to another reporter. But Acosta initially refused to give up the microphone to a White House intern who tried to take it. The White House revoked the hard pass and didn't specify if the move was temporary or permanent. Sanders, the White House spokesperson, said the White House revoked the past because it could never tolerate a reporter placing his hands on any young woman just trying to do her job as a White House intern. Well, administration officials noted that the cable news network has more than 50 other journalists credentialed to cover the White House, adding that no journalist has a First Amendment right to enter the White House. Lawyers for the White House further argue that the president is generally free to open the White House doors to political allies in hopes of furthering a particular agenda. And he is equally free to invite in only political foes in the hopes of convincing them of his of his position. Rather, the First Amendment simply does not regulate these decisions. 
The First Amendment does not impose stricter requirements when journalists as a subset of the public are granted or denied access to the White House. Once again, Acosta and CNN have become the news rather than reporting the news. We'll follow the story to see what happens next. Meanwhile, what happened in the White House isn't all that unusual. White House reporters have made presidents fume long before Jim Acosta. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll tell you about some such instances and why this is not new and probably won't be the last time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 33 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, at the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Catherine Petras. She's the co-author, along with her brother, of That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means. We're also going to talk with the stream's John Zmirak about some similarities between politicized Islam and Western secularism. So that's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour as well. Well, Ronald Schaefer, writing for The Washington Post, points out that the White House reporters who made presidents fume um, did so long before Jim Acosta, and there will probably be others to follow. What have you done for women? One persistent reporter pressed then-President John Kennedy. Well, I'm sure you haven't, I'm sure we haven't done enough. Kennedy responded with a laugh at Gannett's May Craig in November of 1961. Well, that exchange was much more friendly than the recent confrontation between President Trump and CNN's Jim Acosta that prompted the administration to ban the reporter from the White House. A Trump-appointed federal judge on Friday ordered that Acosta's press credentials be restored at least until a final decision is made. Acosta isn't the first White House reporter to make waves at presidential news conferences. Craig, wearing a hat with flowers, was one of the first attention-getting reporters. Sarah McClendon and Helen and Thomas posed tough questions for decades. ABC's Sam Donaldson also drew notice with his aggressive questioning of presidents, but none were banned from the White House. Reporter banishment is a new chapter in presidential news conferences, which began with Woodrow Wilson in 1913. President Dwight Eisenhower started the first televised news conference in 1955, but these are recorded and selected clips were just released to the press later. Kennedy began live televised news conferences in January of 61. He often called the 72-year-old Craig, who was a seasoned war correspondent, on the woman um, uh, question. Uh, Kennedy answered further, I must say I am a strong believer in equal pay for equal work, and I think that we ought to do better than we're doing, and I'm glad that you reminded me of it, Mrs. Craig. Well, McClendon, who headed a group of small newspapers in Texas, brought what she called a pushy and sometimes confrontational style to news conferences. In 1958, she pressed Eisenhower on why his administration wasn't doing more to combat the recession. The president's face reddened and he clenched his fist as he began the answer. Now, look, he said. McClendon's tactics sometimes got results. At a news conference in early 1974, she complained to then-President Richard Nixon that some Vietnam veterans were running into delays getting government checks to pay for college. When Nixon said the problem had been addressed, McClendon reported, no, you're just misinformed or you've just misinformed. The president uh, later said in a radio broadcast that because uh, of questions from a very spirited reporter, he had ordered changes. Sarah McClendon, Nixon once said, asks questions that no man would ever think of. Not sure that was a compliment or maybe a backhanded compliment. Not everybody appreciated the little lady with the big voice, as McClendon described herself. President George Herbert Walker Bush warned her the loudest voice won't always get recognized because it isn't to the uh, fair to the others. Eric Sievred of CBS News said McClendon was a lady who had um, 
and you could call women ladies then, a lady who has been known to give rudeness a bad name at times. McClendon died in 2003 at age 92. Thomas started covering the Kennedy White House for United Press International in 1961. She immediately gained a reputation as a tough questioner. Kennedy said of her, Helen uh, would be a nice girl if she'd ever get rid of that pad and pencil. She probably had to be loud and somewhat brash to be heard in those days. Uh, Thomas uh, didn't stop asking pesky questions when President Bill Clinton called on Thomas to ask the first question following revelations about his sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Thomas asked, you may not like it. She then pressed Clinton about his previous denials of any involvement. When George Herbert Walker Bush announced that the defense budget wouldn't be cut after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall, Thomas Uh, asked him, who's the enemy? In 2006, she asked President George W. Bush, why did you really go to war in Iraq? In 1975, Thomas became the first female president of the White House Correspondents Association. She uh, quit UPI in 2000 and soon joined the Hearst newspapers. Her long career abruptly ended under a cloud of controversy in 2010 after Thomas, who was uh, of Lebanese descent, said Jews should leave Palestinian territories. She died in 2013, again at 92. Well, not again. She only died once, but her predecessor, McClendon, also died in at 92. ABC's Donaldson became known for shouting questions at President uh, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. Donaldson was all business all the time. When Reagan talked to reporters about his meeting with Mother Teresa, Donaldson bellowed, what about the tax bill? Well, some confrontations took place in the press briefing room that Nixon had installed over the White House swimming pool. Reagan's press secretary, James Brady, joked the president planned to install a button on his podium that he could press to open a trap door under reporters who got out of line. The briefing room is now named after Brady, who was shot and badly wounded during a 1981 attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. Brady died in 2014. Donaldson's bluster never led to his being banned. Indeed, Reagan seemed to enjoy the confrontations. Once, when the TV newsman asked Reagan whether he took any blame for the lingering recession in the early early 80s, rather, the president quipped, yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. Donaldson, who retired in 2013, is... Supporting the CNN lawsuit challenging the White House ouster of Acosta after Trump called the reporter a rude, terrible person. Donaldson is now 84, and he said President Harry Truman summed up the necessary interplay between a president and the press corps when he advised government officials at every level. If you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Even some journalists say Acosta sometimes draws too much attention to himself, but that pushing for answers is the job of White House reporters. As Thomas uh, once said, in the arena of presidential news conferences, there are no rude questions. Well, the truth is there are always potentially rude questions in any setting, and depriving your colleagues of the opportunity to ask their questions, I suppose, might constitute a a sufficient um, way of describing or defining what rude questions might uh, entail. Ask journalists, and they uh, likely tell you they uh, play things right down the middle. They strive to be fair. They're centrists. But it's not true. The profound leftward ideological bias of the big media is the main reason why America now seems saturated with news that they aren't sure they can trust. Journalists besotted with their own ideology are no longer able to recognize their own bias. 
Well, despite journalists' denials, it's now pretty much a fact that journalists, journalism rather, is one of the most left-wing of all professions. But until recently, that wasn't thought to be true of financial journalists who have a reputation for being the most right-leaning or free market-oriented among mainstream journalists. If that was ever true, it sure isn't today, according to a new study. Researchers from Arizona State University and Texas A&M University questioned 462 financial journalists around the country. They followed up with 18 additional interviews. The journalists worked for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, Associated Press, and a number of other newspapers. What they found surprised them. Even the supposedly hard-nosed financial reporters were overwhelmingly liberal. Of the 462 people surveyed, 17.63%, figure that out, called themselves very liberal, while 40.84% described themselves as somewhat. Uh, When uh, you add it up, 58.47%, almost 59% admit to being left of center. Along with that, another 37% claim to be moderate. What about the mythical conservative financial journalist? In fact, a mere 0.46% of financial journalists call themselves very conservative, while just 3.94% or almost 4% said that they were somewhat conservative. That's a whopping 4.4% of the total that lean right of center. Well, that's a ratio of 13 liberals for every one conservative. Whatever happened to ideological diversity, or for that matter, unbiased journalism? Remember, this is... um, As you watch the business news or read a financial story in the uh, newspaper, you might want to take its message with a a grain of salt or at least level it out with recognizing the bent that makes its way into the reporting on those issues, either right or left. That's especially true if the pieces uh, seem unduly harsh on the free market system and its many proven benefits or if it uh, lauds socialism as the answer to our social ills. This is an enormous problem for the media, perhaps bigger than they realize. A Rasmussen Report survey in late October found that 45 percent of all likely voters in the midterm elections believe that when most reporters write about a congressional race, they're trying to help the Democratic candidate. Just 11 percent said the media would be would try to help a Republican and only 35 percent said they thought reporters simply try to report the news in an unbiased way. Rasmussen notes that this helps explain why Democratic voters are much bigger fans of election news coverage than others. They see it as favorable to their own beliefs. Even so, that doesn't keep people from seeing the harsh reality of bias. A post-election survey of 1,000 voters uh, by McLaughlin and Associates found that a forceful plurality, or 48 percent of respondents, believe the media coverage is unfair and biased against President Trump. Even 16 percent of Democrats agreed. It used to be thought that... Sure, the cultural beat writers, book reviewers, and op-ed writers all shared a common intellectual bent and thus were more likely to be left-leaning than other reporters. But those recent studies show that's not true. The taint of bias now infects all of journalism, not just the cultural and opinion spinners. It wasn't always this way. A long-term study of reporters' leanings and attitudes, the American journalist in the digital age, shows that the drift toward liberalism has been going on for years within journalism. In 1971, Republicans made up 25.7% of all journalists. Democrats were 35.5%. And independents were 32.2%. Uh, some 6.3 of responses were other. By 2014, the year of the last survey, the share of journalists identifying as Republican, uh, Republican rather, shrunk to 7.1 percent and 18.6 percent 
point drop from having near parity with the journalists, uh, Republicans in the 1970s. Democrats today outnumber Republicans today by four to one. We're talking about journalists. Meanwhile, the share of journalists calling themselves independent has surged to 50.2 percent. In case you uh, think the growing body of independents uh, qualifies as the center, think again. Repeated surveys show that independents are usually left of center on social issues, but centrists on fiscal issues and uh, many issues of governance. So you should really characterize them as moderate left. Well, bad news for journalists and bad news for journalism, because as Americans continue down their path of growing mistrust of the mainstream media, they'll start looking for alternatives. Will they find new, more trustworthy sources of news? Well, that's a big question. Or will they just turn turn it off entirely? Either one isn't good for journalists or good for America. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 48 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Next hour, Catherine Petrus will join us, co-author of That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means. We'll also talk with the stream's John Zmirak about the similarities between politicized Islam and Western secularism. Well, the Correspondents' Association, the White House Correspondents' Association, decided they were going to do away with comedians or comedians altogether in the 2019 event. Michelle Wolf, who was the uh, the latest in that lineup, called the White House Correspondents' Association cowards for ditching comedy for its annual um, dinner in 2019 after she made headlines with a crude performance last April. Um, Ron, uh, let's see, biographer Ron Chernow will be the uh, speaker. He's an historian. The White House Correspondents Association has asked, he says, has asked me to uh, make the case for the First Amendment, and I am happy to oblige, Chernow said. Freedom of the press is always a timely subject, and this seems like the perfect moment to go back to basics. My major worry these days is that we Americans will forget who we are as a people, and historians should serve as our chief custodians in preserving that rich storehouse of memory. While I have never been mistaken for a stand-up comedian, I promise my history lesson won't be dry. So if you've abandoned watching the uh, dinner, you might want to revisit it with a little bit of a twist, a different twist this time around. Well, the Education Department has officially released new rules on how to enforce Title IX, the federal statute that forbids sex and gender-based discrimination in public schools. The guidance will replace an approach that was established under the Obama administration that threatened free expression on college campuses and due process rights for students accused of sexual misconduct. Well, unlike the previous administration guidance, the DeVos policies operated in accordance with basic principles of fairness. They're a massive step forward. If college uh, colleges are going to be involved in the business of adjudicating sexual assault, this new approach is vastly preferable. At least uh, those who favor it have uh, made that assessment. Well, a draft of the new proposals was released in September. The final version differs slightly, according to an education department spokesman familiar with the process. The biggest change since the draft proposal is that the increasingly popular single investigator model of sexual misconduct adjudication, in which a sole administrator was which was charged with investigating the allegation, preparing a report on the matter, and passing judgment, is no longer permitted. Universities will be required to provide a separate decision maker. 
uh, either an individual or a group to determine an accused student's guilt. A less welcome development is the appeals provision. Under the new rules, both the accuser and the accused will uh, still be able to appeal the outcome of the Title IX decision. Civil libertarians oppose that idea. In the criminal justice system, only the defendant can appeal a guilty verdict, holding an additional trial after a finding of innocence constitutes double jeopardy. But in other important respects, the new rules are a vast improvement over what existed previously. Three of the ways that DeVos's new rules will make uh, campuses freer and fairer, they're going to define sexual misconduct more narrowly. Under the previous system, administrators were obliged to investigate any unwanted conduct of a sexual nature, which is a fairly wide swath of behavior. Some officials even interpreted this to include mundane speech that happened to involve gender or sex. But the new guidelines uh, specifies rather that Title IX is only infringed when conduct is severe, pervasive and objectively offensive. Violence and quid pro quo arrangements are also prohibited. An administrator with knowledge of a potential Title IX violation does not need to follow through with an investigation if the allegation does not satisfy that criterion. Number two, the new rules mandate cross-examination. Well, previous guidance didn't explicitly forbid cross-examination, but it heavily discouraged the practice due to concerns that questioning of alleged sexual assault behavior um, uh, or the survivor would be uh, re-traumatizing. Well, the new rules state that neither the accuser nor the accused need to be physically present in the same room, but their attorneys or support persons provided uh, by the university must be allowed to submit questions uh, on their behalf for the other party to answer. There are some exceptions. Neither party can ask questions pertaining to their previous sexual history with other partners. Uh, this is consistent with state and federal rape shield laws, which also limit such questioning. And finally, the new rules let colleges set their own evidentiary standards, but require similar standards for non-Title IX adjudication. Currently, universities have to adjudicate sexual misconduct under a preponderance of the evidence standard. The accused is found guilty if there is 51% certainty that he or she is guilty. Uh, Now, universities can use either this standard or the clear and convincing standard, which requires greater certainty. Um, Some are skeptical that uh, many administrators will return to the higher standard of proof, which opens them up to criticism from uh, feminist activists who think they aren't doing enough to punish uh, rapists. However, the new rules do stipulate that a university must use the same standard of Title IX as it does for other matters, even ones involving the faculty. If academic misconduct is adjudicated under the clear and convincing standard, sexual misconduct has to be handled in such a manner as well. This could create... uh, pressure to adopt higher standards uh, uniformity. So that that could be a a better approach for these um, campuses. There are other boons for advocates of due process. The jurisdiction of Title IX will be limited uh, to events that transpire on campus or are properly described as school functions. The new rules also recognize differences between K through 12 education and college K through 12 teachers, for instance, have to initiate investigations if they become aware of sexual misconduct, whereas college professors are not necessarily on the hook at the university level. Misconduct has to be generally reported to a Title IX officer for an investigation to unfold. So the adult students are responsible for their own reporting, while minors um, are, have the protection of teachers being required to do so. The rules will undoubtedly infuriate uh, activists uh, of Title IX, which has worked tirelessly to strip accused students of fundamental due process protections 
Uh, but this does at least introduce some balance. Reforming this title is largely a thankless task. It's given to those uh, rather given that those helped by these reforms, men accused of sexual misconduct are an um, unsympathetic lot. But it does introduce some balance and fairness in the process. And we'll see how that uh, that plays out uh, moving forward. A lot more that could be said about that, but we'll leave that for another occasion. Well, the Treasury Department announced uh, on Thursday that it's slapping sanctions on 17 Saudi government officials over the killing of writer Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Turkey last month. The Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control is sanctioning Saudi. I won't try to mention the names, but a senior official of the Saudi government who it says was part of the planning and execution of the operation that led to Khashoggi's death, as well as other government officials who it says were involved in the plot. This is the Treasury Department. The Saudi officials we uh, are sanctioning were involved in the abhorrent killing of Jamal Khashoggi, these individuals who targeted and brutally killed a journalist who resided and worked in the United States must face consequences for their actions. It's a quote from uh, Secretary Steve Mnuchin in a statement. The United States continues to diligently work to ascertain all the facts and will hold accountable each of those we find responsible in order to achieve justice for Khashoggi's fiance, children and the family he leaves behind. The government of Saudi Arabia must take appropriate steps to end any targeting of political dissidents or journalists. Meanwhile, we learn that the CIA has intelligence that substantiates an assessment that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, according to U.S. uh, to a U.S. official familiar with the intelligence. Now, that has been disputed by the White House, the the, uh, Washington Post has reported it, but we're expecting the CIA assessment as early as tomorrow. Well, the official declined to characterize the confidence level of the CIA assessment. A separate U.S. official told CBS News on Friday that U.S. intelligence has high confidence in its assessment that Ben Salman ordered the killing, an assessment based on an understanding of how Saudi Arabia operates. So that would suggest this was um, somewhat speculative in uh, and that there wasn't evidence to corroborate that. But neither official indicated that there is direct evidence linking Ben Salman to the killing, including on the day of the incident. The CIA assessment regarding the death of Khashoggi, who wrote for the Washington Post, was first reported by news outlets on Friday, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and the Associated Press. According to sources cited in those publications, the CIA's assessment appeared to be largely based on the control held by bin Salman. In other words, the murder could not have been carried out without the knowledge of bin Salman, often referred to by his initials MBS. MBS has denied any involvement in Khashoggi's killing. The CIA declined to comment. U.S. intelligence officials told CBS News that the intelligence agencies believe the killing was premeditated. So again, that report is expected uh, sometime. It it was expected sometime today or tomorrow, but uh, we're... Uh, expecting sometime before the holiday weekend begins on Thursday. The CIA has declined to comment thus far. The president told reporters on Saturday morning that he hadn't been briefed on the assessment yet. He later spoke with his CIA chief and top diplomat about the spy agency's assessment. And in a statement later on Saturday, the State Department spokesman Heather Newart said that the U.S. government is determined to hold all those responsible for Khashoggi's killing accountable and that uh, the government has not made a final conclusion. So it would suggest that if, in fact, the CIA, in the absence of evidence, has concluded that it would not have been possible to carry out 
uh, such an action without the um, the knowledge and consent of the Saudi crown prince uh, that the United States has committed itself to doing something. This is a very precarious position given uh, the uh, role that the Saudis are playing in the United States effort to uh, curb the enthusiasm, if you will, of Iran. So we'll continue to follow that story. And uh, if and when the CIA report is released um, tomorrow or Wednesday, we'll certainly comment on that and bring you up to date. We've got news and traffic here at the top of the hour. And when we return, we'll talk with Catherine Petrus. She, along with her brother, co-authored the book, That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means. It's kind of a fun volume. In fact, it would make a great Christmas present if you're looking for something for the reader uh, or the... um, uh, the person who is uh, interested in language uh, in your family or your circle of friends. Catherine Petrus, up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Glad to have you with us. Well, I was excited when this little volume arrived at my desk, simply titled, That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means, The 150 Most Commonly Misused Words and Their Tangled Histories. Now, I have to admit, I was a little reluctant to open the volume because I was concerned to find out how many words I had misunderstood and misused. And certainly when you do a two-hour talk show every day for a number of years, I'm sure I've misused practically every one in the book. But I thought it was uh, intriguing to uh, to see just how... Careless we can become with the use of the English language and how difficult it can be to master it, uh, even in areas where we think we might know what we uh, what we mean to say, but don't say it as well as we ought. Well, even the most erudite among us uh, use words incorrectly every day. My next guest and her co-author write, don't be uh, one of them. And that's one of the reasons we're going to have this conversation today. The book is an entertaining and informative guide that uh, that simply titled that doesn't mean what you think it means. It examines the etymologies and tangled histories of the most common 150 words even smart people use incorrectly. Using examples of misuse from leading newspapers, prominent public figures, famous writers, among others, language gurus, uh, Catherine and Ross uh, Petrus, they explain how to avoid these perilous pitfalls in the English language. Uh, Each entry into the book also includes short histories of how and why these mistakes have happened, uh, some of the debates about which uses are and are not mistakes, and finally, how to use these words correctly or uh, why to not use them at all. By the end of this little book, uh, every literati will be able to confidently, casually, and correctly toss in a um, a priori um, without hesitation, knowing what it means, as Immanuel Kant coined the term. Well, Catherine uh, Petrus, along with Rice, uh, Ross Petrus, inserting my own name there, are the authors of the number one best-selling page-a-day calendar, the 365 stupidest things ever said, now in its 21st year, with over 4.5 million copies sold. Also, You're Saying It Wrong and many other best-selling humor and gift books. Their works have uh, received the attention of personalities like David Brinkley and Howard Stern, media outlets including The Times, New York, uh, Chicago Tribune, Wall Street Journal, and much, much more. They've appeared on hundreds of radio and television programs, and now we're honored to have at least one of the pair on ours. So please uh, welcome our guest, Catherine. Um, it is such a pleasure to have you, Catherine Petrus. 
Welcome. Why, thanks so much for having me, Georgine. Well, I appreciate this book, although I have to say I was a little sheepish about opening it. <laughs> I felt a Let little exposed. You, it's scary to write a book like this. <laughs> the more I write these, the more panicky I become when I open my mouth, because I know I'm going to make one of the mistakes <laughs> I've just said you shouldn't make. You yeah. know? <laughs> well, and the expectations for you, I'm sure, are much higher than the rest of us. Well, I just try to keep my mouth shut a lot now. I've learned. <laughs> That's the way to go. You begin in the introduction by writing, this book is about words that aren't doing what they want to do because we're not letting them. It's really a word liberation book, letting those words be the words they were meant to be. Uh, it's so interesting to look at, as you pr- present in the book, the history of words, how they they came into our English vocabulary, how they've been used, misused, and uh, evolved over a period of time. What motivates you to look at the language in such a way that uh, we're challenged to be perhaps a bit more precise in our use of it and our understanding of it? That's a really good question. I mean, I think it's um, there's there's a few answers to that. Number one, nowadays, especially with the internet, with texting and so forth, people have gotten sloppier. I mean, there's a lot of people, and people have also gotten, I think, much more a grammar policey about things. Mm. I mean, how many times do you just do a simple typo, and you know it's wrong, but you're just like, you're going quickly, and someone's like, aha, you know, they catch you. <laughs> um, secondly, I think that... Um, there's a whole debate right now in, in dictionaries, whether it's something should be prescriptive or descriptive. Prescriptive, you tell people this is the way it should be. Descriptive just collects and says this is what people are using. And this is a big fight in the language area right now. And Ross and I, my brother and I, fall right in the middle. I think there are times when you should say, yes, this is absolutely wrong. And I think there are times you should say the language is changing. It's not really, hopefully, comes to mind. That used to be a big bugbear with people. God forbid you'd say, hopefully I'm going to be there on time, because it doesn't mean that. Hopefully technically means something with hope. Um, Nowadays, more and more people are using it, quote, incorrectly, unquote, and I think that's just fine. But then you have the other sort of things. I'm going on and on. I'm sorry. Once you get me started (laughs) on words, you can't stop me. No, please go on. I I think you're making the point I was trying to to get to. (laughs) What, but then there are words that are wrong. I, mean, I have right in front of me penultimate. This is one of my favorite examples because I can't tell you how often I have seen people who should know better use the word penultimate to mean the most absolutely ultimate thing ever. Um, hmm. We have an example in the book, and it's from a Huffington Post story about a planned film about Abraham Lincoln. And they said how Steven Spielberg was determined to find an actor from across the pond to play the penultimate American president. And now, it's highly unlikely that they meant to say that Lincoln was the second-to-last American president in history, because that would be wrong, but that's what they said. Because penultimate does not mean more ultimate than anything else, which would be a misnomer anyway. Mm-hmm. It means second-to-last. And I, I, that's one that I see people in business using constantly um, incorrectly, like saying, like, oh, my, you know, our new CEO is the penultimate leader of our company. It's like, <laughs> what do you know that we don't know, you know? <laughs> Watch the stock market because something's going to happen. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Quick, short it. <laughs> Is that uh, susceptible to insider trading if you, if you have that yeah, kind right. of information? Well, it seems to me that uh, much like mathematics, um, language has become – we've become more sloppy about it and perhaps less concerned than we ought to be. Does anybody really care anymore how – uh, how carefully and precisely we use language. That's a different question than whether or not people should, or have we become so casual that um, 
we're, we're sort of losing the beauty of the language because we misunderstand its nuance. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for mentioning the beauty of the English language, because that is one of my big things. I think that when we get sloppy, we fail to realize that English is an, a magical language. It has so many words from so many different cultures that you can find the exact word. And why use something that's incorrect that means something else when you have the perfect word right there if you know what you're doing? That said, though, when you were saying, like, you know, do people really care? Now, I think it's a split decision. I think on one level, being sloppy with language can hurt you. Um, I think like when you're going for a job, if you're going, you're trying to impress somebody for whatever reason. If you're sloppy, I think that if you use something incorrectly or if you're a little lax, I think it can, it can give the impression that you're sloppy across the board, which probably isn't the case. That said, though, there's always a caveat. That said, I would argue that because, as you were saying before, people getting sloppier and sloppier, I think that a lot of people don't care. I think that it's sort of like, well, gee, I can say whatever I want and it doesn't make any difference. I would argue that it does make a difference. Yeah, it though. certainly can. It certainly can. Now, we're not just talking about spelling errors, uh, the paronyms uh, or what people um, call uh, words that are confusing on account of they, they sound similar or they're, they're spelled differently or they, they have similarities but uh, don't mean the same thing. We're not just talking about spelling errors, although some of these words might fall into that category, but we're talking about uh, mistakes that are, are far uh, more important or significant in terms of meaning. Exactly. Um, um, like, okay, a word noisome comes to mind, and that people are starting to use to mean noisy, and it actually means, like, really smells bad. <laughs> so if you say, oh, there was, like, a noisome, noisome crowd, you're, you're being quite, uh, I don't know, you're, you're not being very kind. <laughs> Unless, of course, they were noisome. Well, that's true. <laughs> but I suspect they weren't. <laughs> uh, you write that before we begin, we want to say emphatically that we are not absolute antiqua- antiquarian-style prescriptivists. Uh, we speak in funny quasi, rather, who speak in funny quasi-British accents, stare over our glasses, and insist on old definition of words and refuse <laughs> to acknowledge changes in English. That's not your purpose here. It's to help us better understand the language we think we know so that we can communicate more clearly with one another. Precisely, because that's the one thing that when we first started writing these books, we wanted to be sure we weren't running around being, you know, um, grammar police. Uh, mm-hmm. cause I think that that's, that's obnoxious, frankly. And I've been known to correct people. I won't deny it, but I try <laughs> not to, because I think we're all, try- we're all in this together. So I think it's one thing to correct someone kindly, another thing to sneer at them for using the wrong word. That said, I mean, when we did this book, it was awfully fun in, in, a, in a way to find, like, august publications like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal making the kind of mistakes we ourselves would make. Yeah. You go, we're, we're, all, we're all pretty imperfect here. Yeah, we're in good company if we're making these yeah, right. mistakes. Now, how did you narrow the field to 150 most commonly misused words and their tangled histories? Well, as you might imagine, it was pretty difficult. Um, we, we did it a bunch of different ways. We used a lot of surveys. I mean, there's, there's different companies have done, like, there's a couple of translation services that have done um, surveys. The, I think it was the Telegraph in um, England did a survey that, of what are the words that most people find confusing. We also then started asking friends and family, and the fascinating thing we found was that here, Ross and I are brother and sister. We grew up together. 
we came from so obviously the same background, et cetera, et cetera. And we found that each of us had our own words that we didn't know were wrong that were, and the other person would go, oh, everybody knows that one. And then one of us would look at the other and go, I didn't. So it was a across-the-board approach. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to look at some of those 150 most commonly misused words. My guess is we're going to find some in that list that we are – commonly misusing. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. Again, the book is titled, That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing my conversation with Catherine Petrus. She is the co-author of That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means, the 150 Most Commonly Misused Words and Their Tangled Histories. The book is published by 10 Speed Press. And if you were looking for something to give someone uh, for Christmas, this might be just the thing. It's uh, it's informative, but it's also lighthearted so that uh, the recipient won't be offended, but might actually appreciate being corrected in some ways, as certainly um, I have. Uh, now, Catherine, um, there are some words here that uh, to me are just absolutely obvious. Um, let's see, uh, presumptive and presumptuous uh, or presumptuous, depending on how you pronounce those two words. But they're often uh, misused or one used in place of the other. Is there like a top five of the 150 uh, that you found were most commonly misused? Um, I'm going to have to do this off the top of my head. I would say affect, effect, yeah. you know, A-F-F-E-C-T, uh, E-F-F-E-C-T, uh, flout and flaunt. Um, I'm just trying to think. What are other ones? These are the ones that are confused, I would, you know, mm-hmm. with, with the one, one with the other, as you said, because they sound so similar. Um, what else would there be? Moot is often misused, but now it's like that's one of the ones that's it's gotten to become what it is. <laughs> Mitigate and militate surprised me. That came up a lot. Um, the two getting confused. Um, luxuriant and luxurious, which was one that I think, look, the one thing we did find is a lot of times, and it's unfortunate, people make the errors right when they're trying to sound the smartest. And I think there's certain words that just sort of roll off your tongue and you just think, ah, it was luxuriant. It sounds nicer than luxurious, and it's, <laughs> it's completely wrong. I mean, so right when you're trying to sound, ah, very erudite, you're actually sounding kind of idiotic. But which is unfortunate indeed. <laughs> well, let's talk about the word moot. Um, as you pointed out, it has become, it's been misused so often and for such a long period of time, but that now the misunderstood meaning has become the meaning. How often is that evolution part of the English language? Incredibly common. Um, the one thing that always strikes me when we look at the etymology or the de- and, and, the, and the development of a word is how often the incorrect meaning, incorrect in quotes now, started many, many years ago, centuries ago, so it's not like it's a new imposition. It's just that it took that long to sort of take over the correct meaning. Mood is one of them. And that's a word I have always, I I always panic now when I use it, because I had always used it to mean, like, you know, the point is mood, there's nothing to debate. Like, it's, it's, it's set in stone. And that's not what it means at all. It actually means it is open to debate. Um, so there's no point in debating it because it's so debatable. So it's it's one of those very weird um, dichotomies. But now, as you said, everyone uses mood to be like, you know, conversation closed. The point is mood, and that's become now the accepted meaning pretty much. I say avoid it. 
personally. I mean, just if you, because there's going to be someone possibly who's a nitpicker who's going to say, aha, you know, what that, you know what that really means, and you're going to be in for a lecture that you don't want to hear. Yeah, yeah. Now, you point out that in France, they have a national academy, and they actually rule on what's good French and what's not. We here in the in the United States, we're more democratic. We all decide what's uh, acceptable, maybe not right or wrong, but what's acceptable. Um, is there a final arbiter in uh, in North America uh, that we can look to? I mean, this book certainly is a tremendous help because it, it gives us the uh, the original intent of words and a bit of the history. But is there a final arbiter that we can go to that says, yeah, this is the right way to use that particular word or phrase? And there are a few phrases in the book as well. Unfortunately, no, actually, and that's what makes life so complicated. Um, literally, figuratively comes to mind. That is a pet peeve of mine. Mm. People use literally to mean figuratively. I mean, like, I was literally on fire. I would hope not. I mean, if you were, <laughs> we'd be very concerned about you. Um, I think this is where that whole thing I was talking about before with prescriptivism versus descriptivism mm-hmm. is getting problematic, because dictionaries used to say right, wrong. I mean, the problem is, is they were arbitrary, too. I mean, a lot of what we learned when we were kids as proper grammar, really, there's no reason for it. Like, the old thing we, we were taught back when I was a kid, don't, like, end a sentence in a preposition. There, it's just because some guy back in, I think, the 1700s had, didn't like it and put it in his grammar book, and it got picked up from there. There's no reason other than that. So we so, can end a sentence with prepositions now? We sure can, and you can feel, feel fine so liberated. about it. Do it loud and proud. <laughs> I feel a sense of freedom I've never had before. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? <laughs> well, I suppose this also explains why, why English is such a difficult language to learn. Uh, for people who want to learn the language well and have some, uh, some sense in which I understand the language and I, I can interpret it correctly, <laughs> they may be... Um, perhaps better English speakers than the rest of us, but it makes I it very guess, tough. You know, cause it's, it's an incredibly tough language. I'm, I'm learning Spanish right now. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and there's nice rules, you know what I mean? You can look at a word and you know, like, when to have this ending, when to have this. Mm-hmm. You look at English, I mean, it's the old thing. Our, our, the book prior to this was um, You're Saying It Wrong, which was about pronunciation. And the O-U-G-H ending, or A-U-G-H, is just mind-boggling if you look at it. I mean, tough, through, rough, bow, slough. I mean, it's just, (laughs) I think there are eight different um, variations in O-U-G-H. So, I mean, if you're, if this is, we learn it just through practice and being exposed to it. If you're coming from another background, another language and learning it, it's just you have to slowly pick it up. And you're going to make errors. You have to make errors. Well, and if you don't, you won't be considered a, a, a good English speaker anyway, because yeah, right. the, rest us, the rest of us. Now, do you have some favorites in the book that um, you might inform us uh, on? Oh gosh, one of my favorites is not even. Um, it's 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 not a word that you run across a whole lot. You run across a lot in literature. It's lim l i m n, and I fell in love with that word back um, when there was a New York Times book reviewer who never met a limb she didn't like. Every review talked about limbing. <laughs> and um, I always wondered what it was, and I found out it had been used wrong most of the time. It means to portray or depict in words, but people use it to like to mean cover or to skirt around or to outline. It's not quite right. Um, just desserts drives me crazy. That's that's a spelling one kind mm-hmm. of, but it's it's just desert d e s e r t s because. Um, 
people seem to think that you're talking about dessert, like cake, or a <laughs> desert, like a sandy place. But just desserts, the dessert in desserts means deserved. So when you say just desserts, it means rightly deserved. It has nothing to do with deserts or with um, food. <laughs> Which is sort of disappointing because I really like cake. <laughs> Who's responsible for our inability to speak our native tongue well? Is it my fifth grade teacher or is it just the, the culture that has taken great latitude in how we communicate with each other? I think it's it's just a cultural thing. I mean, I think one of the best things about English is its flexibility, but one of the worst things about English is its flexibility. Yeah. So you have people sort of pushing it constantly, and, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. It's what I said before. I think I'm, I'm all for evolution, but I think there are certain things. If there are two words and one of them means something different, use the correct word. By the same token, there's nothing wrong, as I said, with ending your sentence in a preposition or with using the word hopefully to say I hopefully am making sense here. Well, I would highly recommend the book, uh, certainly to have in your library this uh volume that I have will certainly have a respected place in my library, but it's also a fun gift that you might pass along to others. And if you want to be understood, you might want to consider thinking about what the words you use actually mean, what their intentions were, how they're used today, and a bit of that history that I think will help us appreciate the language and perhaps even uh, use it more skillfully. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Catherine Petrus uh, wrote the book along with her brother, Ross Petrus, and it's titled, That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means, The 150 Most Commonly Misused Words and Their Tangled Histories. A very fun, <laughs> fun book to have in the library. And I have to admit, there were quite a few in here. I thought, oh, I've been misusing that, like moot. I've, been, I've used the popular use of it now, but that's not its original intended meaning. So anyway, a lot of fun. All right, coming up, we're going to um, we're going to talk with uh, John Zmirak. He writes for the stream. Uh, we're going to talk about politicized Islam and Western secularism and what they have in common. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I read uh, with uh, great interest a column that was written by the stream's John Zmirak, and the story was about Asia Bibi. She, of course, is the Christian woman in Pakistan. She drank from a well that was claimed to be for Muslims only. Um, Then she argued with some Muslims about the truth of Islam as opposed to Christianity. She is a Christian. She was convicted of blasphemy, sentenced to death. She was then um, uh, acquitted, I guess is the right word, her conviction was overturned uh, because some people there and others around the world fought for her, uh, her freedom. But now she's in danger again because Western nations like Great Britain have refused to give her asylum. When I started reading the column, I thought it was just about the circumstances in that case. But one of the uh, one of the um, things that John Zmirak um, argues in that same column is that politicized Islam and Western secularism have much more in common than anyone uh, realizes, and I wanted to talk with him uh, f- first of all, of course, about Asia Bibi, but about this uh, this other point that he makes that I think is certainly worthy of consideration. Again, uh, the streams. John Zmirak joins us to talk about his uh, column dated the sixteenth. Um, Asia Bibi, the Muslim world's Terry Shivo. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you, Georgine. Uh, sometimes my best columns get the least play, so thank you for calling <laughs> attention to this one. Um, okay, here's basically what I'm saying. Uh, about 15 years ago, there was a woman, Terry Schiavo, yep. who was um, she was on life support, and her parents wanted to keep her alive, and her husband wanted to cut off her food and water so she would die of thirst and hunger. And he ended up winning. And I'm comparing... Asia, B, what Asia Bibi and the way, she, the way the Muslim world is treating her with the way the secular West in America treated Terry Schiavo. Uh, in each case, the, there, you've got a woman who is, in a sense, blaspheming against the central value of the culture. In, in, in Islam, it is obviously respect for the Prophet Muhammad. In America, it is, it's, it's respect for the individual will for, for our, our ability to maximize our number of happy moments in life. That's all that American liberty means, according to Anthony Kennedy in his opinion, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That is still the governing opinion on abortion in America. It's not even Roe v. Wade. It's Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in it, Justice Kennedy said that the heart of American liberty is being able to come up with our own answer to the mystery of existence and making up our own moral code. That we, each of us, has the arbitrary right to make decisions like that. And I thought, that's very interesting. That reminds me of someone else. That reminds me of Islam's picture of Allah. Now, as Christians and Jews have a notion of God that he is, he is reasonable, and he is bound to keep his word, he's bound to tell the truth, he doesn't change his mind, that his, his reason is the primary thing in the universe, that God is a rational, rational existence, not a creature, he's the rational creator, and we, our reason, can to some degree understand God's will. Islam doesn't believe that. Islam believes that, if he, that Allah has the right to change his mind, he has the right to lie, um, he can contradict himself. The Quran, Allah contradicts himself all over the place, especially about the critical question of whether non-believers should be left alone or whether they should be killed and persecuted. Uh, he flip-flops all over the Quran. That's why Muslims can cite a tolerant surah from the Quran here against the intolerant one over there. And which one is binding? Well, for Muslims, the one that was issued the last is binding. So Allah is able to change his mind. And they say that's essential, because otherwise he wouldn't be free. And so the God of Islam is an arbitrary, potentially narcissistic, you know, uh, he can flippantly change his mind. He can, because it's his will, it's his willpower is essential to, for him to be free. And that reminds me of the picture of the, of, of the citizens' rights that Anthony Kennedy laid out in KCV Planned Parenthood. Asia Bibi might very well die to vindicate the Muslim idea of, of the infinite arbitrary freedom of God, the way Terry Schiavo died to vindicate the Western, selfish, narcissistic version of the human self that can make things up as they go along in order to keep abortion and euthanasia legal. Let's talk about well, some of the... That's not too complicated for the radio. <laughs> no, I think what you've said is, is very important, and I would encourage our listeners... In fact, I'll put a link on the website to read the article. It took me a minute. I had to reread certain elements of it to really appreciate what you were saying, but then the light bulb comes on and you recognize this is really very significant, and we need to understand it because these are the underpinnings of our constitutional republic, 
um, that are shaping decisions that are being made, not just by the Supreme Court, but at virtually every uh, every level. So let's talk about some of the implications of this view that was espoused by the Supreme Court justice, who's now um, retired, um, but suggesting essentially that there are no absolutes that we can kind of decide for ourselves and fumble our way through uh, life and making determinations about, for example, the value of life and other important issues. Yeah, like whether or not male and female really exist, or can you just decide to identify as the opposite sex and waltz into, can I just decide, I identify as a woman for today and waltz into a female locker room. In many places, many jurisdictions, I could. And that comes from the same crazy, arbitrary idea of freedom that Anthony Kennedy offered to every American citizen and that Muslim theologians claim for Allah. Mm. Now, just it's, it's arbitrary. It's not based in science. It's not based in reason. It's not based in observation, history, or tradition. It's just you pull it out of your orifice, and everybody has to respect it. <laughs> Excuse me. I thought we <laughs> believers in the Judeo-Christian God. We were supposed to be the Luddites, and we were supposed to be the anti-science um, group. Right. And yet, this is precisely the the route that's being taken by the broader secular culture. Oh, it'll kill science. You know, it kills science in the Muslim world. Um, there's a great book I was reviewing in this essay by, called On Islam by a priest, Father James Schall. He's one of the good Jesuits, and so, of course, he's in his 80s. On Islam by James Schall, S-C-H-A-L-L. I highly recommend it to anyone. And he explains how science didn't grow up in the Muslim world because they thought to, to formulate a scientific law, even gravity, was blasphemous because you're limiting God's freedom. Maybe God wants the rock to fall upward. And if you say there's a law of gravity, you're limiting God's freedom, and that's strangled science in the Muslim world. Well, science is being strangled right now by transgender ideology, which is telling us that men can menstruate and men can breastfeed and women can have penises, and you're not allowed to look at you know, you're not allowed to look at IQ scores. You're not allowed to look at genetic differences. We have to pretend that there are no races, that there are no sexes, that everybody is whatever he decides to, that he, to pretend to be at any given moment. And now we've got somebody saying he identifies not as a 60-year-old, but as a 20-year-old, and he wants his birth certificate changed. Mm. We have no argument against that. Uh, again, one of the things that you point out in the column is that Islam and the secular West are kissing cousins. Now, some people would just... Uh, recoil at the thought that there's any similarity at all, but what you outline here is precisely that. And that's precisely why the secular elites in places like Europe and America want to import millions of Muslims. They feel more of a sympathy with the Muslims on on a deep psychological level than they do with Christians and Jews. They want to bring them in, they see them as allies to tear down Christendom to carry down what's left of our Judeo-Christian heritage because they see it as unnecessarily restrictive of their lifestyle choices. And the crazy thing is, of course, Islam is far, yeah. far more restrictive. So um, they're, you know, they're going to, they're going, they're going to get a comeuppance. That uh, <laughs> it's not going to be pretty when the, the ra- radical Muslims who have been imported by the liberal, the liberal elites decide to start closing their gay bars and forcing their women to, to wear chador, uh, hijabs and, and, you know, burqas. Um, it's, but, of course, by then the, the liberal elites won't have anything to stand up. You know, they'll just, they'll just cave, they'll roll over, they'll convert to Islam. They mm. absolutely will. Well, let's go back to Asia Bibi. She 
um, has been rejected or, or she has not been given asylum by Great Britain and perhaps other Western countries out of deference to angry Islamist mobs um, that Is they that have incredible? invited in. What's what's happening with her? Um, I don't know. I suspect there's some backroom negotiations. I, I, I would be very surprised and disappointed if President Trump does not offer her asylum here in the U.S., she will be she'll be safe here in the US and in fact I hope she moves down here to Texas where I live where she will be very safe because we have an armed citizenry and we unlike Europeans when terrorists pull out machetes we don't have to go hide and wait for the unarmed police to come up and try to talk the person into taking putting down his machete all right. Well, I appreciate, appreciate you joining <laughs> us. Uh, the streams, John Zmirak, thank you so much. And again, I'll put the um, put a copy of the column on the website so All folks right. can, can read it. Hey, thanks so much. All right. Have a great night. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back for the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow we're going to talk with Jonathan McKee. He's the author of The Bullying Breakthrough, Real Help for Parents and Teachers of the Bullied, Bystanders, and Bullies. Uh, it's a book in, um, in great demand, given the fact that bullying, uh, with the advent of social media and other opportunities that have presented themselves, has made this a, a real epidemic in our culture. So Jonathan McKee will join us uh, tomorrow in the four o'clock hour. Also, I'm going to be joined by a fellow uh, traveler as we're going to talk about my great ad- Indian adventure. And uh, that's coming up in the five o'clock hour. And I think we're actually going to get a phone in from one of our uh, fellow travelers from Texas who was part of the uh, the team. So that's coming up in the five o'clock hour of tomorrow's program. Looking forward uh, to that. Oh, and by the way, on Thursday, we have a Thanksgiving special we'll share with you and our annual Squanto. I'm sure that has an official name, James. Do you know the official names of that program? We always call it Squanto, but it certainly has more of a title than that. The Le- The Legend of Squanto, pro- produced by Focus on the Family Radio Theater. So you know it's quality if you haven't had the opportunity to hear it. If you have, you know it's a tradition and you may want to just uh, listen in um, as well. That's coming up on Thursday, Thanksgiving. Well, this fall has been a record-breaking season for politics. No news there. Almost half of Americans of voting age cast ballots in the midterm elections this year, the highest turnout since 1914 before women could vote. We elected the first Muslim and Native American women onto Congress, and the first openly gay mayor was elected. Uh, But let me give you some advice. This Thanksgiving... Put politics aside. In fact, surveys indicate that people are more concerned about the conversation that's likely to come up uh, around the holiday table than anything else. Politics at the dinner table can be pretty risky as in terms of a cohesive, pleasant uh, afternoon or evening together. But even more so on Thanksgiving, when six in 10 Americans say they dread the topic coming up. Well, the way to... uh, Avoid it is to just not bring the topic up. Politics, as you know, is divisive, or it certainly can be. Uh, It's the issue most likely to cause a fight on Thanksgiving. And on top of that, as Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist Daniel uh, Kahneman um, points out, the chance of you being uh, being able to change someone's opinion on the deeply held political views by arguing with them is close to zero. So. 
talking politics is not going to be very productive if there are differing opinions, and chances are there will be. Well, the problem is what starts as a good-natured debate or conversation can easily turn rather combative. Mix that uh, with the fact that half of the children end up rejecting the political affiliations of their parents as adults, and you have a dangerous recipe for a day that should be a celebration of being together and gratitude. Now, I'm probably preaching to a choir that already knows how to handle these sorts of things, but here are some suggestions those who might be just struggling with how are we going to approach this time together, some alternatives to those conflict brewing political conversations that could come up this year. Share some fun facts. That's one suggestion. Did you know that the first Thanksgiving rather was eaten with spoons and knives, but no forks? Pilgrims at the time didn't even know what a fork was. And you might not be able to... Um, Outrun a turkey. Wild turkeys can run up to 20 miles per hour when they're scared. Also, every year the president pardons a turkey, a tradition that um, dating back to the 1940s uh, that can spark some engaging discussion. Uh, pardoning turkeys has gone on to uh, uh, or I should say pardoned turkeys have gone on to uh, retire at places ranging from George Washington's Mount Vernon to Disney World. So there are turkeys still roaming the a planet who have been spared. You might want to turn on the television. No, I'm not talking about soap operas, but Thanksgiving Day as a host of uh, famous American pastimes. You've got parades and football. So having that in the background might help to deflect uh, focused attention on politics. Rooting for two different sports teams is a much safer kind of disagreement uh, than an argument over two political parties. The Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which began in 1924 with 400 employees marching with live animals from Central Park Zoo, uh, will have a talented lineup of stars from Sesame Street characters, uh, Diana Ross is performing, and much, much more. Um, Thanksgiving is also popular time to watch classic movies like a Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving and a miracle on 34th street. Maybe some things to have playing in the background that will focus one's attention away from political conflict. Another suggestion is to get outside. The holidays are all about traditions and it's never too late to start a new one, especially out in the crisp fall air. And I anticipate we're going to have pretty lovely weather this Thanksgiving. Start hanging those Christmas lights or go for a family hike. Uh, one family tradition is, um, called the turkey trot, the younger members running, the elders uh, walking, where the family just goes out together. Uh, Thanksgiving can be a difficult day for those who are struggling with homelessness or loneliness. So Thanksgiving, you might consider volunteering as a family or at a local soup kitchen or doing something that focuses attention outward rather than inward to the things that you perhaps do not hold in common as a family. Uh, One uh, columnist, uh, Mitzi Purdue writes that in my family, we often spend part of Thanksgiving packing presents we'll give to people who've experienced floods or fires. And we certainly have uh, much need uh, to the south of us. Even the youngest members participate by making holiday drawings that go in the package that they're sending. Uh, We're living sometime um, uh, something uh, Frank Purdue used to say, if you want to be happy, think what you can do for someone else. If you want to be miserable, think what's owed to you. So this is another strategy you might consider employing some sort of activity that focuses attention on the needs of others. Well, holidays, as we all know, should be a time of bringing families together, not tearing them apart. And we have plenty uh, that can help us do that. But making Thanksgiving a controversy free day, uh, the focus of, uh, of, um, 
on things rather that unite you, not just those things that divide us. Focus on building new traditions, ones that will leave everybody looking forward to the next year's holiday instead of dreading it is the real challenge. Now, I know for some, you're going to someone else's home and that's where you have Thanksgiving and you don't have any control over uh, the direction that the uh, the conversations take or what's likely to happen. But do your best to try to uh, encourage and inspire some perhaps new traditions, even if it's in the form of um, of conversation. Just some things to think about. But if you run out of ideas, I thought this might be rather interesting. Uh, Meghan Markle and her mom, Doria Ragland, uh, they're going to be a part of the, um, they call it a Christmas lunch. It's part of a, a bizarre tradition there in the UK in which you weigh guests when they arrive, and then you weigh them once again when they leave. Now, this may contribute to the controversy of such an event, but Meghan Markle and her mother will be weighed after their Christmas dinner as part of the bizarre royal tradition, according to a royal expert. Uh, The editor of Majesty magazine says that um, each member of the royal family, including Meghan's hubby, Harry, and his brother, Will, they're weighed before and after they tuck into their turkey dinner on Christmas Day. They have turkey on Christmas Day. Well, the tradition dates back to King Edward VII's reign in the early 1900s and applies to all members of the royal clan. As the festivities uh, undeniably revolve around eating, the royal family first enjoy the turkey dinner with all the trimmings before indulging themselves rather in an afternoon tea complete with a gargantuan iced cake. And although the queen appears to have uh, bent the rules by inviting Meghan's mother to join the family at the uh, event, an honor which has never been bestowed on Kate Middleton's parents, by the way, this um, this sacred tradition means that both Megan and her mother will be weighed both before and after they leave the royal residence. What's more, the Queen's guests are also expected to enter the dining room in order of seniority. After they are um, then seated, uh, the head chef carves the turkey and paper hats are donned, but not by the Queen. Queen never looks foolish, so she doesn't have to wear one. In order to make room for their lavish afternoon tea, the royal family then walk the grounds of the uh, Sandingham estate and enjoy a candlelit dinner in the dining room in the evening. So they have the turkey event, then they have the tea, then they have a candlelit dinner, and they weigh them before and after. So if um, if you're complaining, you're not grateful, you might at least be grateful that you're not required to do that. Just a... Just a thought. All right. We're out of time. Want to thank you for listening. Tomorrow we'll talk with Jonathan McKee, the bullying breakthrough. We're also going to talk about my recent uh, return from India. So hope you'll join us. Have a great night. Want to thank James Blinn, by the way, for producing and engineering today's program. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.